John chapter 1. How many people are you in Matthew? I wasn't, I saw your Bible open at John. See, it's a good thing she's homeschooled because if she was in public school, she'd be in trouble for looking at the other person's desk all the time. Cheating off their homework and taking their answers and stuff. She's constantly up here looking at my notes on my my pulpit, and she's turning to the songs before we get there. I tell you, she's nosy. I just happen to be standing there. It's a coincidence. Anyway. And sitting here. Curiosity got the best of her. Anyway, John chapter number one is where we're at. And uh, I said going into the beginning of this series that we've began <laughs> that uh, we're going to be kind of jumping back and forth between uh, between the Gospels. We're going to be looking in. Uh, different accounts and bringing out different thoughts. I don't know, we might spend quite a bit of time in John, but what we're wanting to do is we're wanting to turn our attention toward Jesus, and I want to uh, I want to try to get our focus on Jesus, on his teachings, and on some of his examples in Scripture. I want us to uh, be able to, uh, as I said, I, I want us to be able to focus on him, because we can get focused on ourselves, we can get focused on one another. We can get focused on the uh, shape that the world's in, and even in our studies and in our, our messages that we've been preaching and things, we can get focused on all these other people, but ultimately it comes back to Jesus, and he is the central theme. He is the one that deserves all honor and praise and glory, and so what we looked at last week, we looked at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in which he showed all of us how to face temptation. We found out that uh, that all of us will face temptation. If the devil was willing to come to Jesus and tempt him, there is none of us that are outside of the realm of possibility. There's none of us that's going to escape uh, temptation. Uh, we also find that temptation desires to come between us and God and to destroy us. But God has provided for us a, an escape plan. The Bible says that uh, there is no temptation taking us except that which is common to man. But with every temptation, God has provided a means of escape. And so as we looked at this means of escape, we can escape temptation by knowing his word and by walking with him. As Jesus was led out to the wilderness, he was led out of the Holy Spirit. He was in God's will. He was being led of God. He was there where he was supposed to be, when he was supposed to be. And whenever he faced that temptation, we found that every time he faced it with the word of God. And we talked about in Ephesians chapter number six, that the word of God is the sword of the spirit. It is the weapon of choice with the, the, the spirit uses to defend us from all the attacks of the devil and such. And so for us, we need to be in the word. We need to be walking with God and we can overcome temptation. And whenever we are, uh, victorious over temptation. There are great blessings in store for us. We found that after Jesus had refused to give into this temptation, that the angels of the Lord came, ministered to him, provided him with the bread that uh, Satan tried to get him to make out of stones. And throughout the process of his ministry on the earth and in his death, his burial and resurrection, he was able to also get the, the praise and salvation of men and to earn his rightful place as being the king over all of this world, over all this creation. So all the things that the devil offered him shortcuts to, God gave it to him ultimately. Okay, And Satan will offer us shortcuts. He will tempt us with shortcuts. He will try to get us to do things 
in questionable manners, try to get us to make things happen more quickly, try to get us to be impatient. And God says, just follow me. Just allow me to direct your steps. Allow me to guide you where you need to be, and I will see to it that you get what you need to have. And that's what God did for Christ. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to see Jesus as he begins to attract a following. Uh, we're going to see him as he begins calling to him or gathering to him uh, the, the start of his 12 disciples. And in the passage, we're not going to see all of them. We're going to see about five of the 12 disciples come to Christ. And this is going to be his core group. This, this is going to be the ones that's going to have a front seat to Jesus' ministry. They're going to have their failures and their successes recorded. Now, that, that makes it a little heavier, doesn't it? Everybody wants to be a follower of Jesus, but you don't really want your failures to be recorded for all the world to read about for thousands of years to come. Some of the things that we read about to this day, about Peter, about Thomas, his failures were recorded, right? But also his successes. And these are going to be these men that are going to uh, go on to write scripture. Many of them are going to go about doing miracles. One of them is going to betray him. or Peter is going to uh, deny him. And so all these things going on in these men and they're going to be recorded and they're going to end up uh, ever living in fame or in Judah's case in infamy. And so though we could look at what was written about each of these men, instead I want to uh, look at Jesus as he starts to draw them unto himself and look at his relationship between him and these disciples because I believe in many ways his relationship with these disciples is going to mirror his relationship that he has with us. Okay, But let me ask you this first before we get into the passage. If you were the Son of God, come down amongst the men that you have created, how would you go about selecting your disciples? Do you ever get a little extra free time and just sit down and think on these kind of things? If you were Jesus, who would you choose for disciples? Would you choose Peter, James, and John? Would you choose, uh, would you choose Judas? Would you choose Nathaniel? Would you choose all of the, Thomas the Doubter? Would you choose these men that Jesus chose? What qualifications would you put forth? What would be the criteria that you would go by in choosing these men that would go on to represent you, to be identified with you, and to carry forth your message and your ministry after you left the earth? Who would you choose? You wouldn't choose the ones that he did. Honestly, as I think about it, it would be bad just to have to choose out of mankind in general, isn't it? Because this is Jesus. This is the Son of God. This is the creator, the sustainer of life. And he comes down and he's like, yeah, it's slim pickings, right? Not a whole lot to choose from whenever he looks at mankind because we are ultimately all sinners. We all have our flaws. We all have things that are messed up about us. We look at it in Sunday school whenever we were uh, talking about Nebuchadnezzar. If you go for the the powerful and the well-known, well, you wouldn't want him, right? You go to a lot of these different men that we would choose because they are prominent or they are powerful or it seems like they have a great following or their fame or their intelligence or whatever it may be, but yet they are still flawed human beings. And so Jesus came down and he chose out of men some of the most 
maybe I should say instead of most, the least likely suspects, the least likely candidates. And I'm glad that Jesus doesn't act or choose like we do. His ways are better than our ways. Because if Jesus would have chose like we do, he wouldn't have chosen any of us. Right? He wouldn't have chose me, that's for sure, if he would have picked like me. We've already discussed in the past that our idea would be strike him dead, right? Whenever Adam and Eve messed up, let's scrap this and start over again. Think about whenever Peter denied Jesus. Oh, that's strike three. You're out of here, right? You look at some of the things that they done, some of the stupid arguments that they had along the way. Do you think that it was all peace and comfort and things amongst the 12 disciples while they were following Jesus? No way. You have two of them that were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. Why were they named the Sons of Thunder? Because of their boisterous and powerful personalities that aren't going to mix well. You have people who were coming from differing social, uh, social and economic places within society. You have them coming from different regions. You have them coming from different backgrounds, different uh, uh, professions, all these things. And many of them would have been opposed one to another. Uh, we know that none of them would have liked uh, would have liked Matthew, right? Because he was a tax collector. Does anyone like the tax man? I mean, he would have been disliked by all of them. But yet Jesus chose these guys that probably none of us would have chosen. He didn't seek out the wealthiest, the smartest, the most beautiful, or even the most teachable or the most obedient. But thankfully he takes whosoever will. And that's how you and I get in. Right? So let's look at John's account of how Jesus uh, got his 12 disciples here in John chapter number 1. And we're going to start in verse number 35. It says, Again the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, what seek ye? So basically he turned around and he says, What do you want? And they said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, which is being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? And he saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelled, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first findeth his own brother, Simon, and saith unto him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him unto Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he saith, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which, by, which is by interpretation a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the apostles did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, 
Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for this account that you've given us of these men who came to you, and the, some of them you came to. And Lord, we just thank you for the way that you uh, don't choose the, the most beautiful, the most intelligent, the most prominent, Lord, but Lord, you have room for whosoever will. And Lord, we just pray, ask you that you would help us today as we look at this passage. God, and direct me in my thoughts, help me in my words, Lord. And I just pray that these things would be helpful and would be encouraging to those who hear it, Lord. I just pray you do a work in the hearts and lives of each person here. Draw them to you, Lord. I pray if there's anyone lost, that today would be the day that they would be saved. Thank you so much for all you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as we see this, it's a fairly short passage, but we have the account of five of the 12 disciples first coming into contact with Jesus. This is their very first interactions with him. As you notice here, most of them has never seen him, never heard him, knows nothing about him. We find that John first points out uh, to Andrew, and I believe the other one was John, because John rarely ever, if ever, refers to himself by name. He's the other disciple, the disciple that Jesus loves, things like that. And so we have Andrew and I believe John there, and Andrew goes and gets his brother Simon. And then later on we find Philip, and Philip goes and gets uh, Nathaniel. And all of these men come to Jesus, and this is their first time at, whatsoever that we find in Scripture interacting with him. Uh, Andrew and John didn't know who he was until John the Baptist said, here's the lamb, behold the lamb. And they said, okay, well, if he's the one that you've been preaching about, we're going to stop following John. We're going to start following Jesus, right? That makes sense. And then uh, Philip, or excuse me, not Philip, Andrew goes to Peter and says, come and see this one that we found. Jesus calls out to Philip. He's the only one out of the bunch that Jesus actually calls to, right? And he says, Philip, follow me. And Philip goes and first goes to Nathaniel. And I like Nathaniel's response because Philip goes to Nathaniel and by the way, as you look at that in verse number 45, uh, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. See, he's new to this. He doesn't even have his theology right. He says he's the son of Joseph, right? And Nathanael's response is, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth would have been just a tiny place. It would have been a backwater, if you will somewhere that no one would expect the Messiah to come from. Of all places, they were expecting him to come from Bethlehem, but they didn't know the whole story, right? And so as these men are coming to Jesus, they had never met him, didn't know anything about him, but they have an inkling. They have the word of John the Baptist, for one, saying that this is the Messiah that would come. And so this is their first interaction. And it's interesting because they don't realize that this is a life-changing moment for them. Because this man who they are seeing for the first time is the one that they would ultimately give up everything for, give their lives for, and ultimately end up dying for. Because out of all the apostles, John the ba or not John the Baptist, John the Apostle is the only one that actually lived to old age. The rest of them died martyrs, right? And so they were going about a normal everyday routine, normal everyday life, and Jesus came near 
and they were introduced to him, and this was going to be the moment that would change their lives forever. But it seems that it just comes off as being so normal and natural, doesn't it? He's not coming in with pomp and glory. He's not coming in and saying, come and let me see what, or see what I'm going to do with your lives. He's not telling them that I'm going to transform your lives. I want to change your lives. He's not coming in as some kind of king or visionary or anything else, but he's simply extending the invitation or having others extend the invitation. Follow me. Come and see. Just give me a chance, right? And this is the beginning of a change in their lives. And it was really their curiosity, if nothing else, that brought them to this place. It wasn't a moment of great revelation. It wasn't anything else. There was a curiosity. And isn't that what comes along with this idea of coming and seeing? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Well, if you're unsure about it, why don't you come and check it out for yourself, right? It seems normal and natural. But that's not the way that we would expect things to happen. Isn't it true that Jesus usually does things in unexpected ways? If you're going to have a life-altering experience, don't you think it's going to be something bigger? But not usually. A lot of times it comes from the normal and the mundane, and that's what happened here. But Jesus doesn't tend to follow our scripts, and I'd say all of us know that. And so, as I said already, in many of the ways, the way that Jesus dealt with his disciples is the way that he deals with us. And so I just want to look at six short things about how he dealt with his disciples, his interaction with them, and how it applies to us, okay? And so the first thing that I find about the, him and his disciples in this passage is, first and foremost, he knew them. He knew them. They didn't know him. But he knew them. Isn't that what stood out to Nathaniel? Nathaniel asked him this question. He says, Whence knowest thou me? That'd be a little bit strange, wouldn't it? You meet a stranger on the street, you're first introduced to him, and he calls out aspects about your character. He knows about your personality. He actually knows you. Peter and I had this conversation back a couple weeks ago about the difference between knowing about someone and actually knowing them. You can have an acquaintance. I might know a little bit about you. I might know what you look like or where you live, but do I truly know you? And Jesus truly knew them. He knew them inside and out. He didn't just know uh, their outward appearance. He knew their inward thoughts. He knew their flaws. He knew their strengths. He knew their successes. He knew their weaknesses. He knew their fears and anxieties. And he also knew who they were going to become and what he was going to do in their lives. He knew more about them than they knew about themselves. If you look at Peter up there, as soon as he saw Peter, what does he say to him? Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. He says, I'm going to change your name from the first time that I meet you. Well, that's a little bold, isn't it? Peter comes up, he introduces himself to me, and I, I say, ah, you don't really look like a Peter to me. You look like, uh, you're a Cephas. That wouldn't really bode well for most people, right? But this is Jesus, right? And I want to say that Peter, whenever he first came to Jesus, he wasn't necessarily stone material, was he? But Jesus is seeing for what he's going to become, not who he is. And so he knew him. And so... <clears throat> 
he knew everything about them. He knew them better than they knew themselves and what they were, what they were going to become, all these different things about them. He knew about their inward struggles. He knew uh, who they were. Among his 12 disciples, he had uh, fishermen. He had tax collectors. He had political extremists. He had Galileans and Judeans. He had those who were tall and those who were short. Remember James the Less? James the Little One? Uh, he had those who were mild and those who were fiery. He had doubtful men. And then he had men who were of no guile. That man, uh, Nathaniel there, it meant that he didn't try to trick anyone, that he didn't try to uh, mislead anyone, but instead, whenever you looked at Nathaniel, you got what you saw. He was a genuine person. But then you had Judas, who was full of guile, that you couldn't trust anything about him, and you couldn't trust any of what he was saying or what he was representing. And so he had this great mixture, and Jesus knew this. And that's incredible to me that even though he knew them, he still chose them. It would be scary for me if I had that kind of knowledge about people or if people had that kind of knowledge about me, right? That would change the dynamics of a lot of relationships, wouldn't it? But it didn't with Jesus. Jesus knew them. And so with all these things that he knew about them, nothing about them caught him off guard. Nothing surprised him. Whenever they came and they just absolutely blew it, didn't surprise him. Whenever they came out saying stupid things, didn't surprise him. Whenever their bad characteristics and their, uh, their fears, their anxieties, uh, all these different things came about, didn't surprise him. He knew them thoroughly. And there was never a moment where he had thought, if I knew this about them, I wouldn't have picked them. Isn't that what would happen with us? Some of the truth comes out, some of the different things about him. I'd be like, ah, now I regret picking them. Never happened with Jesus. So he knew them, and I believe he knows all of us just the same. Tells us that the very numbers on our heads are all numbered. He knows everything about us. Knows us better than we know ourselves. And even though he knows us, and he knew them, he still loved them. He knew them and he loved them. And that may not be readily uh, understood from this passage that we read today because it's just kind of going through and seeing their first acquaintance with him. But if you look at the way that he tenderly dealt with each one of them, it is apparent that he loved them, right? Nathaniel is an extremely good example of this because Nathaniel was the one who was doubtful, maybe a little bit cynical or sarcastic, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Jesus knew about that, by the way. Right? And Nathaniel comes up to Jesus, and Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And as Nathaniel takes a step back, he's like, Whoa, that was weird. How do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you under the tree. He's like, Oh, how did you know about that? You have to be the Son of God. Truly, you are the Messiah. And Jesus is like, Oh, you're impressed by that? You're going to see better. You haven't seen anything yet, basically, is what he's saying here. And so he's dealing gently with this man who was skeptical, who was cynical. And he says, go ahead and follow me. Keep watching. You're going to see greater things. I already know you, and I love you. And he's drawing these people into himself. And that is amazing. If we don't see that Jesus loves them from this passage, 
If we go over to just another page to John chapter 3, verse 16, a passage we all know. For God so loved the world, and that included these 12 men, right? And on top of that, we have the author of the book of John, who I'd already mentioned here. He referred to himself several times as the disciple who Jesus loved. Do you think that Jesus chose favorites? Do you think there was some that he loved more than others? Now, John is writing this, and he says one thing about it. I don't know a lot about my life. I don't know a lot about what's going on. Everything's constantly changing. Everything's unpredictable. You never know what Jesus is going to do, but one thing I know is Jesus loves me. And so that's what he realized, and he says, Jesus loves me, and I, I guarantee you, if you would have asked any of the other of the 12 disciples, they would have said, yes, I'm the one that Jesus loves. If John would have penned this in their lifetime and they would have read it, they would have said, wait a minute, John. Right? There would have probably been a fight going on, and they're reading down through the, the gospel of John, and they get to this place, and it says, and the disciple whom Jesus loved, you're talking about yourself, John. Hold on for a minute. He loves me too. Right? And so despite him knowing them and knowing their failures, knowing their sins, knowing their doubts and anxieties and worries, knowing all these different things about them, he still loved them. And so in our lives, we, we tend to think and we, we fall for the enemy's whispers that for some reason we mess up or there's something that we try to keep hidden that somehow we think that if God finds out that he's going to think differently of us. And that's not the case because he knows us thoroughly and he loves us anyway. And so he knew these guys, he loved them. And then the third thing that we find about it is that he pursued them. And I've alluded to this a little bit already in Sunday school and things, but he pursued these men. As we read through the Gospels, we get the idea that Jesus just walked by one day and just flippantly said, okay, follow me. And they're like, okay. And they just followed him almost like they were under a spell or that they were in some sort of a trance, right? Have you all been guilty of doing that? Of reading through and saying, oh, that's really weird that this strange guy just walks by and says, follow me. And they just leave everything and follow him. Have you, have you been guilty of reading the Bible that way, thinking that way? But what we find as we read through the Gospels is that each of these four Gospels is a different man's account of what it was like following Jesus. We have Matthew, a disciple. Mark, who was a disciple of a disciple. Luke, who was a disciple of a disciple. And John, who was a disciple. And each of these four men had a different perspective on the happenings and on what went on with Jesus and these 12 men. And as they recorded it, they recorded uh, the, the details that they felt were important. Of course, they were ultimately led by the Holy Spirit. God put in to the word what he wanted. He inspired them to write it. But they had different purposes and different perspectives in their writings. And if we take all the Gospels and we put them together, we can get a more complete story. And so we can take Peter, for instance. Okay. You realize that Peter had at least three different times that God called him, that Jesus called him to follow him. Because if you look in uh, Matthew and Mark, it tells that there was a day that Jesus walked by while Peter was fishing, Peter and Andrew, right? Same account in Matthew and Mark. 
And Jesus walks by and he sees them, and I believe they were mending their nets. And he says, follow me. And they put down their nets and they came and they followed after Jesus. Is that the end of the story? That was when they followed him? No. Then if we look in Luke, we find that Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Then he goes out and he gets in Peter's boat along the seashore. And there's a multitude there. And Jesus uses Peter's boat for a pulpit and preaches to the multitude. And then he tells Peter to go out into the water and to let down his net for a draught of fishes. And Peter, instead of letting down both of his nets, he lets down one. He says, ah, that's not going to happen. I've toiled all night. I've caught nothing. This isn't going to work. And he catches a miraculous catch of fish, right? We're familiar with that story. And then Jesus tells him, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And straightway he left his nets and followed Jesus. So what we get from this is that the first time that Peter meets Jesus, he is brought by Andrew, and he says, we have found the Messiah. We found the one that John's been talking about, the one that the Old Testament apostles have been, uh, or not apostles, Old Testament prophets were telling about. We have found him, this Jesus of Nazareth. Come and see. Peter comes and sees him, right? And goes back and does whatever he was doing before. He's watching Jesus' ministry. He's hearing about the miracles. He might be coming to Jesus preaching and teaching, and he is listening to these things, and he's going back to fishing. Jesus passes by one day. He's mending his nets, and he says, come, follow me, and he sets down, and he probably teaches, preaches a little bit, and maybe heals some people, and Peter's there for it, and he goes back to fishing. And then one day, Jesus comes by. He's been around Peter. He's been associated with Peter. Peter's been there. Uh, partaking of the ministry. Jesus has been teaching him a little bit and discipling him a little bit, but Peter has still been going back to fishing. And so Jesus stops by, his mother-in-law sick, he heals her, goes out, and he says, Peter, you're just wrapping up, you're fishing and everything, don't worry about your mother-in-law, I just took care of her, I need to borrow your boat for a minute. He gets in the boat, he teaches, and he says, Peter, I know you didn't catch anything last night, let's go try again. Peter says, it's not gonna work, I've already done this all night, but if you tell me to, I've been watching you for a while. I've been following you for a little while. And he goes out and he lets down his net and he draws in all of these. See how this goes? And it's building. Jesus is pursuing after him. And after he brings in this miraculous draught of fishes, he says, hold on for a second. This is greater. This is bigger than I ever thought it was going to be. And Jesus then tells him, follow me. I'm going to change your occupation. You don't need to fish for fishes anymore. You're going to be fishing for men. Then Peter follows him. And so the point that I'm trying to make with all of this is that Jesus relentlessly pursued after these men. It wasn't just that he snapped his fingers and they came in a trance and followed after him, but they were watching, they were observing, and Jesus was continuing to draw them unto himself. We can look at Matthew, for instance, too. Matthew set up the receipt of customs. He was a tax collector. He would have been in a public place. He would have been watching Jesus' ministry. He would have been seeing the people getting healed. He would have seen all kinds of things being uh, going on and happening. He probably would have listened to some of his sermons being preached and things like that. But he kept going back to his receipt of customs because there is no way Jesus would want a man like Matthew, right? 
Matthew was the outcast of everyone, and so he admired him from a distance, I fully believe. And one of the reasons I believe that is if you pay attention to Matthew's gospel, how much does he write about before he came into the picture? How much does he record before he was called to leave his, uh, his job as a tax collector and follow Jesus? He had been paying attention. He had been taking notes. He knew what was going on, but he never realized that Jesus could want someone like him until Jesus came and said, follow me. It wasn't a flippant move that he made. It wasn't just all of a sudden, oh, Jesus, okay, yeah, I'll follow you. It was one of those things that he had been watching Jesus for a while. He had been observing him for a while, and Jesus knew it. He knew what was going on in Matthew's heart and his mind. He knew the thoughts that he was thinking. And whenever Jesus said, follow me, Matthew probably said, can you imagine that Jesus would want someone like me? And so Jesus knew them, he loved them, he pursued after them. He continued drawing and calling them to himself. You know, there's very few people who get saved the first time they hear the gospel. There's very few people who get saved the first time they hear the gospel. We looked in, in Sunday school at Nebuchadnezzar and how God continued to pursue after him. And if you'll be honest with yourself, if you're saved here today, God continued to pursue after you. I doubt that you came to him the first time you heard about him, but he continued to work in your life, direct your steps, guide your path, and bring you to himself. He pursues after you. We find all throughout scripture that God pursued men. Uh, I think it's odd to think that the God of heaven would actually do that, that he would be a personal God, that he would be a pursuing God, that he would actually care about us and that he would love us and that he would come for us, but he did. And if you don't believe that he pursues men, you can ask Peter who went fishing after Jesus was crucified and Jesus showed up on the seashore, cried out to him and said, you have any fish? He reenacted that time whenever Peter left to follow him, reenacted it to bring him back to himself. He was still pursuing Peter even after his death, burial, and resurrection. He's still pursuing. You can ask the woman at the well, who had been rejected by all men, except for the five she married and the one that wasn't her husband. She had been rejected by her, her town. She was coming out and drawing water at a time when no one else was supposed to be there just so she could escape their criticism and their ridicule and their judging glances. But Jesus must needs go through Samaria. He was pursuing her. How many people had he pursued? We see the whole Old Testament is God pursuing Israel, right? And God pursues us. Fourth thing that we find about all of this, he knew them, he loved them, he pursued them, he saved them. He saved them. We don't have a record of a prayer or a confession that they made, but there's no doubt that all of them but Judas was saved. The Bible tells us that uh, out of all those that God had given him, he had lost none except for the son of perdition, right? That was Judas. Even though Peter had confessed whenever Jesus asked him, who do men say that I am? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, right? But I don't know that that's when he got saved. This was still part of this process of God bringing him to himself, right? This was still the process of Peter figuring out 
who Jesus is and what Jesus was doing. They were still looking for a Messiah that was going to overthrow the Romans, right? And he says, I think you're the one that's going to lead Israel out of their mess. I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe their salvation occurred whenever they placed their faith in him as a risen Savior. But we find that it is confirmed whenever they receive the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And Peter preaches a message of salvation to all of those people. And there are many people who get saved that day, right? doesn't really matter when they got saved, what the moment was that they got saved. There's room for debate on all of that. But there is no question whatsoever that they were saved. And this is why God pursues us. I've already quoted before, and I have had many times, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is his will. That is his desire. That is why he is pursuing mankind. He knows we are sinners. He loves us. He pursues us, drawing us unto himself so that we will be saved. Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself, right? And that's what he is doing. He is drawing us. He is pursuing us. He is desiring for us to be saved. That's why he came. And then after he saved them, after they believed, after they put their faith and trust in him, then he transformed them. He knew them. He loved them. He pursued them. He saved them. He transformed them. When he first meets Peter, he gives him that new nickname that we talked about earlier. Cephas, a stone, right? And it indicates not who he was, but who he was going to become. And so a lot happens between that first meeting and when we find him preaching at Pentecost and seeing many people saved. A lot happens between that first meeting and when he's writing First and Second Peter. Whenever he is going about and he's preaching and teaching and leading people to Christ, there's a lot that transpires between that time. And it is sometimes a slow process. But God told him, Jesus told Peter, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, right? He says, if you will follow me, I will transform your life. I will change your profession. I will send you a different direction. I will give you a different purpose. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so Jesus doesn't save a person to leave them like he found them. He says to us, behold, I make all things new, right? And he seeks to do that in our lives. He wants us to be transformed. He wants us to be a changed into his image. And that's what he's trying to do. And so we've already talked about how he knows our faults and our failures and weaknesses. And if we will follow him, if we will allow him to work in us and through us, he will transform us. He will take those uh, struggles and troubles and weaknesses and sins and failures in our lives and he will be able to transform us, just like he did with his disciples. And as I said, oftentimes it is a lifelong and it's a slow process. But that's what he does. He doesn't get in a hurry about it. He doesn't snap his fingers the moment we get saved and make us completely different. But as we follow him, he transforms us. And so our last thing that we see here, he knew them, he loved them, he pursued them, he saved them. He transformed them. He sent them. He sent them. Even in the early passages, we see Andrew and uh, Philip going out and getting others and bringing them to Jesus, right? And we talked about Philip's 
uh, theology being a little bit shaky whenever he was saying that it was Jesus, the son of Joseph. But it didn't really matter if he had all the theology right, that he had everything figured out. He was still going out and saying, come and see this man. Come and see Jesus. We have found the Messiah. You need to meet him, right? Jesus gave them a new purpose, and he sent them out to proclaim the good news to all men that Jesus truly loved them, that he truly made Peter and Andrew, James and John fishers of men, just like he told them he would. Despite their flaws, God used them to turn the world upside down with the gospel. And what we believe and what we teach and what we preach today is a direct result of God's work in their lives and through these men. He transformed them. He gave them a message. He gave them a job. And we are benefiting from it today. That's what he does. And so he sent them. He knew them and still loved them. He pursued them. And when they believed, he saved them. As they yielded to him, they tra or he transformed them, and he sent them out to tell the world of the Savior that loves them and wants to save them. And so all of these things that apply to the disciples apply to you and me. Think about this. The Lord knows you. He knew you from before you were born. Before he created this earth, he knew you were going to exist, he knew that you were going to need a Savior, and he still created the earth. He still loved you. He still made a way of salvation. He has known you, and he knows you, and he loves you. In spite of every flaw, in spite of everything that the enemy says about you, he still loves you, and he's pursuing after you. If you're saved, he is pursuing you, wanting your heart. He's wanting you to love him and to follow him and to serve him so that he can transform your life, so that he can work in your life, so that he can do the things that you can't do for yourself. He is pursuing you so that you will yield to him and allow him to do a work in you. If you're not saved here, he is pursuing you because he wants you to be saved. And you have to accept him. You have to make the move. He's not going to force himself on you. But he wants you to know that he has died for you and he is offering you eternal life if you'll simply admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and trust him as your Savior. That's all it takes. He's pursuing you. He's brought you to this place. He has caused your paths to intersect with ours so that you can hear the gospel, so that you can know the truth, so that you can be saved. He is pursuing you. And so for those who have been saved, He's sending you out into this world to be a light, to be a witness, to be salt, so that this world can know about him. He's drawing you into his pursuits of mankind. He's drawing you into his purpose for this world. He wants to see men saved. There's so much more to this life than what meets the eye. So much more than the here and the now and working jobs and paying rent and utilities and all these things. There is an eternity before us. And God says, I love this human race. I want to see them saved. I want to transform them. I want to give them a purpose. And I want to take them to live with me. And we get to be a part of that. So just our final thoughts on all this. He knows you. He loves you. He pursues you. He'll save you, transform you, and he will send you. We have a wonderful Savior, a mighty God, 
And why he would choose me, I have no idea. But I'm glad that he did. Let's go, Lord. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your many blessings, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, that it's not because of uh, who we are, what we are, anything about us that you choose us, but, Lord, that you love us, that you pursue us. And, Lord, I just pray, Lord, you'd help us to respond to that. Lord, if there's anyone here today who is not saved, I pray, Lord, knowing that you're pursuing after them, I pray, Lord, that they would finally yield, Lord, that they would trust you as their Savior before they leave this place. And, Lord, for those of us who are saved here today, Lord, help us just to put ourselves into your hands, yield ourselves to you to transform us and to send us and to do your purpose in this world. We thank you, Lord, that you use folks like us, Lord, that it doesn't have to be the cream of the crop. It doesn't have to be perfect. But, Lord, we just need to submit to you. We thank you so much for that. And, Lord, we do love you and we praise you. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.